Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The House today is expected to pass the Inflation Reduction Act, once known as Build Back Better, a $770 billion climate, healthcare, and tax measure. Defense authorization and appropriations are moving ahead, while President Biden has signed legislation that constitutes Washington's approval of Finland and Sweden joining NATO as full members. Russia's war on Ukraine continues as Moscow continues to use suspect tactics uh, using Europe's largest power plant in Zaporizhia in territory that Russia has occupied uh, as a fire base as Kiev strikes back uh, at Russian bases in Crimea, destroying combat aircraft. China is continuing war games in proximity to Taiwan as Beijing continues its efforts to intimidate its democratic neighbor. And the FBI raided Donald Trump's Florida home to retrieve top secret documents uh, he took from the White House, uh, including those related to nuclear capabilities, which are on an entirely different classification level from almost everything else uh, in the U.S. government. The raid also has reinvigorated Trump supporters. That includes 77 percent of Republicans uh, that constitute about a third of the American electorate. Joining us uh, today to discuss all this and more are former Pentagon Asia Pacific Assistant Secretary, retired United States Marine Corps Lieutenant General Chip Gregson, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, our producer Chris Cervello, who is a retired United States Navy commander and public affairs officer who is also the co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back to the program. Chip, great having you uh, on uh, this uh, roundtable. It's been too long. Uh, And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Securities sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow Media Partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading air show was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Everybody, welcome again. Uh, great to have you on the program. Michael, start us off. Uh, we are, uh, you know, take us through house passage of uh, reconciliation. Uh, and obviously, um, one of uh, the Democrats' uh, signature legislative uh, achievements uh, so far. And then we can get to the NDAA appropriations and everything else we have to discuss. Sure. So as you mentioned, today, the House is expected to pass uh, the reconciliation bill, you know, kind of build back better light, even though they are calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and, you know, it's a bill that will, you know, allow Medicare to negotiate for prescription drugs. Uh, it will extend the uh, subsidies on the Affordable Care Act. It provides a great deal of funding to fight climate change, uh, pays for it with a 15% corporate minimum tax, a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks, and uh, increase money for the IRS so they can increase enforcement and go after people who don't uh, pay taxes. Um, you know, Pelosi can lose, uh, I think, about three votes today, and uh, she may lose two. Uh, Jared Golden and Vicente Gonzalez are the two uh, that are, we're not sure where they're going to vote, but even if they do vote against it, this will pass and will be sent to the president's desk, and it will cap off you know, a series of successes uh, you know, for the administration, uh, you know, getting, you know, the CHIPS Act passed, uh, PACT Act, uh, Sweden and Finland uh, into NATO, uh, this reconciliation package, not to mention earlier successes with the bipartisan infrastructure uh, bill and his American rescue plan. But yet, you know, at the same time, the president's approval ratings remain low. And, you know, my, my personal opinion is it's because his own party continues to undercut him. We continually see Democrats from both the House and the Senate when interviewed and asked, will you support President Biden for re-election in 2024? They can't bring themselves to say yes. Uh, you know, and it's stunning to me. I mean, there's a primary right now in New York between Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney, where Jerry Nadler, when asked the question, says it's too early to say. Uh, Carolyn Maloney says, I don't believe he's going to run for re-election. Uh, Senator Blumenthal was on one of the Sunday shows last week saying that his successes and his chances for re-election will be tied to the midterms. And that's really a silly statement. I mean, look how Obama did in the midterms. I mean, he lost the House and lost a tremendous amount of seats and won re-election. Uh, and I think the Democrats need to be able to answer the question, yes, he is my president. I support him for re-election. And that will not only help Biden's approval ratings, but I think it helps their chances in, in the off year as well. Um, 
So you mentioned uh, NDA and appropriations. So the, even though it's August, it's very slow, not, left, it's not much is happening. There is really no work being done on NDA right now. There's still hope that the Senate does take up the NDAA in September, uh, but uh, there's some pessimism because there's some concern that Schumer may want to hold it hostage to tap, tack some other things onto it that he'd like to see passed, even though right now the Senate agenda for September is to pass the CR and to do nominations. Regardless of that, they will start pre-conferencing the bill uh, when they get back shortly after Labor Day. And I also do expect now with the reconciliation passage that when the members come back after Labor Day, that we will start to see negotiations begin on an, an appropriations top line. I, I, I want to ask you uh, about the primaries, but also note, right, the, the, the Nadler-Maloney race is absolutely fascinating because the debate is whether the Jewish American or the Catholic American is actually more pro-Israel, uh, uh, which I think is just an absolutely fascinating situation. And I, I can also understand because that was my district. I grew up there, um, you know, was was always, um, you know, a predominantly Jewish district. Uh, and it's cer- certainly interesting how the character of New York City uh, and and uh, the representation in the city uh, has has changed over the years. That's a different issue. Um, let's talk a little bit more about primaries uh, and President Trump, President Trump's hold uh, on the party. Uh, right. I mean, we saw a number of candidates that were pro-Trump candidates that uh, continue to uh, succeed. And indeed, um, right. I mean, the FBI uh, raid has sort of reinvigorated that base. Uh, in, indeed. Right. I mean, a number of people this week were saying, wow, you we had really gotten to a place of some political normalcy where things were sort of normal, crazy Washington, not crazy, crazy Washington. And we've kind of gotten back to crazy, crazy Washington, right? Talk to us a little bit about the primaries, what they mean. Uh, And again, right, I mean, a very astute observation, the Democrats are not sort of backing the president, whereas Republicans are overwhelmingly backing Trump, no matter what Trump does, including steal nuclear secrets. Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked last week about uh, the Washington state primary, which happened last Tuesday, but they were still counting votes. And at the time, uh, Congressman Jamie Herrera Butler was ahead and uh, she is one of the few that did vote for impeachment. And since then, she has lost. So another uh, Republican that voted for impeachment has lost and she lost to a guy named you know, Joe Kent. And here's a guy who attended the Justice for J6 rally in Washington, D.C. and supported the January 6th rioters. So, you know, the folks that are defeating uh, these moderate Republicans are going to be very extreme. And, uh, you know, I'll get to that in a second. I, there was another primary on the, this week uh, for in Minnesota. Uh, Congressman Betty McCollum, who's the chair of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, had a very serious challenge by someone who was tacitly being supported by Ilan Omar. But McCollum won handily. Uh, with well over 80% of the vote. And actually, Ilan Omar had a very tight race uh, for re-election in her primary, but she did uh, pull it out. And then I think next week we're going to see um, the uh, Wyoming primary. And despite everything that is happening with Donald Trump, uh, Liz Cheney, uh, according to the last poll, is down uh, 29 points. So things do not look uh, that great for her. Now, look, I, I think you're right. I mean, the Trump raid uh, seems to be uh, galvanizing uh, the Republican base. I've been in communication with several uh, House Republicans whose inboxes are flooded uh, with outrage. And look, that outrage is being stoked a lot by conservative media. I mean, if you watch OAN or Newsmax or some degree Fox, they continue to stoke this outrage with a lot of things that are just not true. Although I have seen uh, last day or two that Fox, some commentators on Fox News are starting to turn and say, hey, you know, let's wait and see. Uh, what this really is all about before rushing uh, to judgment. And Kevin McCarthy came out with a statement somebody sent me earlier that he's a, criticizing any Republicans who are not uh, coming out with statements criticizing the Department of Justice, uh, which is you know really adding more, more fuel to the fire. And, and some Republicans have texted me, especially some of my Southern Republican friends, saying they don't like to jump into muddy waters because they don't really know what's down there. And it's even been reported that some allies of Trump are warning some of these guys in the Hill, hey, be careful about getting too far out of your skis because you might not like uh, what's what's going to come out when this what's com- comes out. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think the the, the progressives really have, are mobilizing around uh, some themes that are going to work for them. Uh, you know that they're going to focus on you know that their message is to protect fundamental freedoms that the Trump Republicans are trying to take away. So I really think we could see a midterm election with uh, possibly unusually high turnout because both bases are, are are motivated. And and I would say this too. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know we talk about. Um, you know, the types of folks that are getting elected and winning these Republican primaries. As a result, uh, I think you're, you, we've already seen Republican leadership talk to their uh, incoming, possibly committee chairman when the Republicans take the House, that they would like to see every committee in the House have uh, create a new subcommittee for oversight. 
that they want to conduct oversight and investigations in the next two years, which I think is also going to tamp up, you know, or ramp up this, this, this partisan fervor across the country. It's not oversight, right? I mean, it's, it's punish any institution that's actually investigated the former president is, is, is what that is, right? I mean, so let's be clear about that. It's not oversight in the classical sense of it. But, you know, and we're going to get into uh, the, the documents and some of the broader themes uh, in, in, a, in a moment. But I also want to point out Rory, Rory Sabatini running in Florida uh, is saying some, you know, fairly outrageous things. But actually, they're not that outrageous compared with where the sort of vision and the position of the party is and drain the swamp and, and all of that stuff, as opposed to at, at some point. Right. This is our system is entirely about accountability. Um, you know, especially since, you know, on this on this call are two people who are con- Senate confirmed uh, who had to live uh, by accountability and continue to live uh, by by accountability. Um, very quickly, Dove, um, I want to get to uh, Asia in a second and bring Chip into the conversation and you on Russia and Chris uh, on this issue as well. But uh, just uh, really quickly on your sense on budget uh, and when it, whether there is anything new to discuss uh, budgetarily. Um, sort of your your sense on on uh, approps authorization and you know more broadly anything else on the political uh, spectrum that uh, you'd like to address. Well, first of all, uh, Mike, I think has covered the general uh, situation very very well. Uh, one thing that I mentioned in passing on your last program last week, which I'd like to emphasize is this uh, seeming opposition on the part of Senate appropriators to a special uh, fund that uh, the DOD Lloyd Austin has personally uh, asked for, for about $500 million to uh, ramp up support of munitions and other materiel that Ukraine needs. Now, appropriators really hate these kinds of funds because they don't have the same kind of oversight. And I use the term in the old sense, not in the sense that was just mentioned. Um, They like to see where every penny is going. And the reason they do that is because 30 years ago, there was a thing called M accounts and the Air Force said, well, you know, these accounts are holdover accounts of monies that were authorized and haven't yet been spent. And so They've piled up and we want a billion dollars and we're going to spend that billion dollars to fix up the B-1 bomber. And that just outraged Congress that there were these funds that they had no control over and they passed legislation to end them. Well, they have this legacy that anything that is a fund that they don't have total control over is like those old accounts. And the fact of the matter is that if you're trying to help Ukraine and they just have approved a billion dollar package uh, of much more materiel, including support more uh, um, materiel to support the HIMARS, including mortars, I mean, all sorts of stuff going to medical equipment as well. Well, if you're going to do that and you have to make rapid changes, then that fund makes a lot of sense. And oh, by the way, a billion dollars in 1989, when you had a budget of less than 300 billion, isn't the same as 500 million and a budget of 800 billion. So I think Congress is being very narrow-minded about this. And uh, if they don't like it, they could always get rid of it once the war is over. But at this time, to do anything that might make it a little harder for us to support Ukraine just is beyond my comprehension. Uh, it uh, it is, and I should point out uh, your piece uh, is in uh, the Hill uh, today, where you make that case uh, in order to fund that. Even though there are people in the department who uh, do maintain that actually a lot of uh, internal moves are happening, and that there is enough money going uh, to try to start the process of replenishing. Uh, stocks. Um, obviously, some acquisition decisions have to be made and programmatic decisions uh, on, on that. Um, just uh, really uh, quickly, uh, Dove, you mentioned Russia-Ukraine, and we're going to get to Russia-Ukraine in a second. I mean, we in this program have been calling for more assistance. Uh, there's sometimes been a little bit of a lag, but the administration has really been making uh, more aid available. Colin Call last week addressed reporters and talked uh, the Undersecretary for Policy, um, you know, sort of detailing American assistance. Um, a little bit uh, more guarded on uh, capa- specific capabilities and numbers of weapons, which is which is very encouraging. From from your standpoint, is the administration doing as much as it needs to do in order to help Ukraine? No, it it isn't. 
Uh, look, the Russians have accused uh, us of providing uh, real-time intelligence to the Ukrainians, which is how the Ukrainians were able to blow up that airfield in Crimea and destroy nine uh, Russian aircraft. Um, that's pretty much going to war. Uh, and so if the Russians are looking at us uh, essentially as a war partner of Ukraine, I don't know why we're not sending Ukraine uh, any aircraft that they might be able to use. I don't know why we're not sending them even more material than, than we already are. Uh, they're still asking for more. I know we're sending more javelins and like I mentioned, some of the other things, but the Ukrainians are asking for more. And frankly, uh, they have uh, an urgent need to take Kherson and those Crimean areas, uh, southern areas rather, because they know that in September, Russia is going to hold some kind of referendum to annex those areas just as they annexed Crimea. So this is very, very, very urgent. And anything that we can do to step up, not just the amount of what we send, but the range of what we send, I think is, is crucial. And it's crucial now. One of my critiques of the Biden administration over the last couple of years is not that they're always wrong, but they're always slow. And this is not a time to be slow. Do you uh, do you think that from uh, a broader uh, context uh, that European support, right? I mean, I know that you're always in touch with your European friends from a um, European support standpoint. Uh, it looks like um, a lot of very positive things are happening. For example, Olaf Scholz was in Spain, right? Spain talking about getting more aid uh, and, and gas assistance to all of uh, uh, Europe. Um, you know, a lot of other positive uh, developments. And I'm going to ask him, uh, ask Chip about them as well uh, in, in terms of Baltic states weaning themselves off of any uh, China groups, for example, knowing the connection between China uh, and and Russia, do you do you think that from a support standpoint, um, the European populace and European leaders are still as much in Ukraine's corner as they need to be? Well, they are right now, uh, and uh, the points you made are good ones. Uh, obviously, the support we give is overwhelming, uh, probably equal to pretty much most of what Europe does all put together. For Europe, the question is going to be the winter. And frankly, for Ukraine, it's going to be the winter. What do they do when it gets cold and there's either no gas or gas is so expensive that people can't afford it? That's going to be the real test of Europe. And that's another reason to accelerate support for Ukraine now before it gets really cold beginning in November. And, and what's the Zaporizhia solution from your standpoint? Right. I mean, the Russians have turned a nuclear power plant, as they did in Chernobyl, into a fire base and using it to project fires uh, and, you know, hoping that they're going to have impunity in, in doing so. Uh, effectively, they're holding the Zaporizhia um, uh, reactor control team hostage, as they did uh, in Chernobyl. Um, from, from your standpoint, what's the resolution of this? Because obviously, the Russians are doing this as a terror weapon, right? Europeans are always concerned about anything that involves nuclear um, and are weaponizing a nuclear facility in order to project fires at a time when they're getting their butts whooped in many places. Well, uh, if you look at what happened with Chernobyl, the Russians eventually backed off and they will back off here, too. I mean, they the last thing they need right now is any kind of uh, nuclear conflict whatsoever. Remember, look at the Russian military right now. Most of it is has been used up. They're losing. I think Colin Kyle was talking about they've lost 70 to 80,000 people already, and Putin's afraid to have a national call-up because that could frankly lead to his overthrow. Uh, so who are they relying on? Chechens and Syrians and criminals and all these odds and sods that I don't know how they work command and control, much less morale. And by the way, morale is one of the keys to winning wars. Uh, it doesn't really show up well in war games. Um, and so if he starts playing the nuclear game, he doesn't know where that'll end, which is why I think he backed off Chernobyl and why I think he's going to back off here. Uh, he is being pushed into a corner. And after all, isn't that what we wanted? I mean, look, I mean, the vision of, uh, you know, sort of bathing suit clad uh, Russians uh, scrambling from their cabanas in uh, Crimea uh, to me was welcome. And I, I just have to say, I think uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is absolutely right. Russians should not be able to travel, period, anywhere. Uh, ultimately, they're part of a uh, regime 
that is prosecuting an illegal war against a sovereign nation. Uh, and there cannot be normalcy for Russians in this context until the war is over with. Uh, yeah, let me so make one. Let me make stay one. Stay in Russia. Would let be me make mine. one last last point, if I may, and I think Chip might want to talk about this in the Chinese context. The reason the Russians are, are being pushed back, and the reason that war games never catch this stuff, isn't just morale. It's corruption. It's it's the lack of maintenance and and poor logistics. It's poor planning. Um, you know, they're, they've been making every mistake in military 101, and they haven't really been able to correct it because, as I said, Putin is, cannot simply call a national call up. And even if he did, quite frankly, he'd have a bunch of raw recruits who don't really know how to fight anyway and haven't been trained well. So they're in a very, very difficult position, which is why the Ukrainians have been able to pick up more territory. And uh, Chip may want to talk about the extent to which the Chinese situation uh, and the Chinese capabilities are different from what we're seeing in Ukraine. Uh, Dove, excellent, uh, excellent segue and uh, trans, uh, transition. Chip, uh, thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure having you on the program again. Um, you know, sort of for first, uh, if, if you want to start there, let's uh, start there, right? Um, as you um, there is a concern that in the wake of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, uh, right? I mean, the administration wasn't crazy about it because it's it's trying to uh, keep the Chinese on the sidelines at the same time, get tough on the Chinese, right? I mean, it's a very delicate uh, um, diplomatic dance. Obviously, the administration is trying to pull off. Um, at, at the same time, the Chinese are inclined to help the Russians uh, at a fundamental level. W- where are we now in China's support for Russia and its never-ending partnership with Russia. Uh, and how is it that we need to be seeing this uh, situation? As you know, Patrick uh, Cronin uh, has joined us for this part of the conversation, but I'm intrigued to see what your sense and take on this is as well, and how the administration needs to negotiate this balance as, as somebody who was uh, once tasked with you know, being tough on China. Well, thank you, Dove. Uh... I mean, yeah, thank you, Doug, for the question. Thanks, uh, Vago, for relaying it on. Uh, uh, China and Russia are not exactly allies. Uh, two autocratic leaders that have been in position for quite some time uh, with a limited number of views that they get because of an ever-shrinking inner circle. Uh, they're they're two uh, leaders going the same way the same day, and that's about uh, uh, all the all the linkage with it. It's to each's advantage to cozy up in a bit to the other, but uh, the situations are different, mainly on the geography. Uh, I associate myself entirely with the comments about corruption and the pervasive effect that that has on the military, but uh, you still have to worry about absolute quantity at some times. I think what we're—I think where we are in Asia is it's now abundantly clear that it's no longer 1995. In 1995, we had enjoyed unchallenged air and sea superiority for four, for 50 years. Um, we no longer have that. In 1995, we deployed uh, carrier battle groups to the vicinity of Taiwan. Uh, in 95, China closed two areas close to the coastline for exercises. This time, it was six areas closed, strategically placed to facilitate a blockade. In 1995, they wanted to, they were very careful not to interfere with commercial seaborne or airborne traffic. Uh, this time they intentionally disrupted air and sea routes to show that they could. Median line protocols were violated. Uh, something that's been termed dispersed operations uh, were demonstrated, uh, showing the effectiveness of the new command relationships that they instituted a few years ago. Their military demonstrations were unfortunately only part of the reaction. Uh, we had the other diplomatic, economic, and political moves. China canceled several hundred bilateral, ongoing bilateral dialogues with the U.S. United Front work is very active in all areas of Taiwan and globally. China restricted import on 100 Taiwanese products. A Taiwan businessman doing business on the mainland was arrested, uh, all for show, of course. And uh, I'm of the view that we must now assume that China is now preparing to take the island by force. And Matt Pottinger had an interesting comment. He said, Xi Jinping has systematically shut down 
any credible path to diplomacy. Implications for the US, uh, uh, way back when Admiral Nelson had a, uh, had a saying that a ship is a fool to fight a fort. If that was true in Nelson's days, how much more true is it now with China with a vast geographic sanctuary loaded with missiles accurate at distance and a uh, pervasive surveillance network, the precision strike regime in other words. Uh, China's massive defense buildup of Navy and Air Force means that even with allies will be badly outnumbered and we need to get with it, assume that it's gonna be a long war with China if it occurs, not a short war. And we need to achieve a unprecedented uh, uh, degree of integration across all, all allied forces, Japan, Australia, India, perhaps others. So how chip, uh, right, um, and, and I, you know, ap appreciate that view. I mean, so there's a, it's, it's two, uh, two part question, right. Which is the follow-up one is how is all of this being received, uh, on the part of Taiwan, right? I mean, a lot of this is to try to intimidate the entire region, show Chinese conviction to the cause, uh, back us off, uh, a little bit from it. And I want to get to polling data in the United States that suggests what the Chinese are doing might actually be more effective than we, we might want it to be. How is all of this being received uh, by your Taiwanese friends and Taiwanese in general? Is it intimidating Taipei? And is it more broadly intimidating anybody else that's an ally, uh, American ally or a Taiwanese partner uh, in the region as well, right? How is this being received by, by Japanese, by Filipinos? I mean, I would suggest the Filipinos signed an agreement with Tony Blinken, um, right, as all of this stuff was, was going on. What's your sense in how this is um, affecting the dynamic regionally uh, and among Taiwanese and allies and partners? Well, what I hear from Taiwanese friends is that uh, our Taiwan friends are hanging in there. They're not uh, being intimidated. Uh, the, uh, I'll know more in a few days. I'll be in a conference uh, Monday and Tuesday with, with a lot of Taiwan friends in Hawaii. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Philippines, uh, you know how things go in the Philippines, uh, but despite uh, perturbations at the leadership level in the Philippines, the United States enjoys a higher approval rating by polls in the Philippines than we hold in our own country. So the Philippines are still uh, solidly on the side of the United States, uh, despite uh, uh, some things that happen on it. Uh, Japan uh, has... Uh, come forward, they've got uh, public approval, a majority of the public approves, uh, improve, uh, approves greater spending on defense. Uh, they uh, are talking of, about something called a counter-strike weapon, which uh, is sometimes described by the Japanese as an independent strike capability to be used in an alliance context. And I'm not quite sure I've puzzled my way through that as, uh, all the way, but nevertheless, they're, they're looking for new weapons. Uh, they have bought and they're buying more F-35s, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they, uh, thanks to Prime Minister Abe, we're now able, they are now able to practice collective self-defense or collective defense. And that gives the United States everything we need to build a greater degree of interoperability with Japan. And we're lagging behind on that, but I would submit with what China's doing, we better get with it pretty quickly here in the future. Things, uh, public opinion and things, especially in Taiwan is trending in our favor, but uh, in summary, the situation has fundamentally changed. We need to change with it to make sure that we maintain uh, the support in Taiwan for things that we care about. Uh, an interesting event on in the near future here somewhere, and uh, maybe the folks on the call here that deal more with Congress than I do, uh, can talk about the Taiwan Policy Act, which grants uh, non-NATO ally status to Taiwan, which is going to be uh, a pretty zesty experience if we get that passed. Uh, I, I think uh, you, you uh, Chip, have devolved into your characteristic understatement, and I'm going to ask uh, Michael and Dove uh, about that in a second. But one question which I have is, um, there was a recent poll that found that Americans sort of overwhelmingly support Washington helping uh, Taiwan, but not risking its forces to fight for Taipei. Um, how do we need, or how does the administration, or how does Washington in general, 
um, have to change the nature of the debate and discussion, right? Because anybody who's familiar with uh, the war games, um, you know, we recently talked to Mark Cancy, and I commend folks to check out our conversation with Mark that ran yesterday as part of our strategist series. And, you know, any Taiwan scenario is devastating, uh, not just for Taiwan. Uh, Chinese forces are crushed, uh, ultimately. Um, and we lose an enormous number of people and equipment in fighting that war as well, uh, or would lose that in fighting that war as well. And as you said, she appears increasingly to have decided, I've got to resolve this by force if I've got to make my 2027 timetable for the centenary of the PLA and, and what have you. What, what is it that Washington and Americans need to be doing to be able to pave the field for greater American support, God forbid, if we have to do this, because it is it is a security guarantee we have, ultimately. A couple of things. We need to look back at and examine all the implicit assumptions that have held for the last 45, 50, 60 years and ask if these things are true. One of our implicit assumptions is that conflicts in Asia are singular separable from each other. In other words, a war in Korea will stay confined to Korea. Uh, a war with Russia over the Kurals or something would stay confined to the areas around northern Japan. A war with Taiwan would similarly stay confined. Uh, I don't see any way around the fact, uh, especially with the range of weapons being what they are today and with three nuclear armed powers out there on the, uh, on the uh, Chinese or on the Asian mainland, I don't see any way any single conflict remains confined. It's, it, it's, it, if it starts anywhere, it's gonna spread everywhere. Uh, secondly, fighting for Taiwan doesn't necessarily mean and that we have to be on, in, around, or standing on Taiwan. As a matter of fact, that would be exceptionally difficult. And for forces who uh, prize the leverage of mobility and reach, fighting in Taiwan is kind of like fighting in a phone booth. Uh, the idea that Americans don't want to see U.S. defending Taiwan if the Taiwanese won't defend Taiwan uh, makes absolute great political sense. I would say that works with every one of our alliances, that uh, it's not a political winner to have uh, American lives lost for somebody who's not fighting to save themselves. So we need to break Taiwan's military out of its isolation that it's suffered since 1979, help it to modernize and professionalize uh, we also need to achieve some kind of interoperability with Taiwan so that we're not shooting with each other uh, and, and, and work it from there. The, um, uh, I'm a strong believer in the fact that deterrence uh, requires an undoubted capability to prevail. And with uh, the challenge that we have now to our, our custom position of unchallenged air and sea superiority, we need to realize that that's under threat and we need to take action to make sure that we can restore our deterrence uh, in a convincing manner. Very quickly, uh, either Michael or Dove, where do we stand legislatively on uh, what, what Chip said regarding uh, uh, legislation on Taiwan? Uh, well, I, have, um, I don't think we're anywhere right now with legislation on Taiwan. Uh, and I don't think for the rest of this year, we're going to see any real legislation passed beyond what we see today with the reconciliation bill and then NDAA getting passed and um, hopefully an omnibus appropriations bill getting passed. I mean, the Democrats are trying to pass a police reform and other bills, but those are more messaging that are not going to have bipartisan support. So I don't really anticipate any major legislation on Taiwan, at least in this Congress. Doug? Yeah, I, I agree with that. The only thing I would say is this. Uh, there's one thing that I don't think needs legislation, which is to change the name of the office. Uh, part of that legislation calls for the name to be changed to the rep representative office. And that happens to be a name that some European countries already give to the Taiwanese office in their country. Uh, that would be a major message to China. Uh, it would not require legislation, but I'm pretty sure it would get bipartisan support. And uh, to underscore what, what Chip just said, I think if the polls are asking people, do you want American troops to fight in Taiwan? The answer is going to be no. If the polls are going to ask people, do you want to help defend Taiwan against Chinese aggression? That, we, that result, results in a very different answer. 
Uh, you always have to be careful about polls because you, unless you know exactly what the question is and what you think people are responding to. Uh, in, indeed, right? I mean, the question you ask is the answer you get, right? Uh, ultimately, and so the, the, on, on almost all of these things. Um, I want to bring Chris into uh, the discussion because there are a couple of uh, important things we, we need to discuss and our time is running short. We've got about 10, 12 minutes left. Uh, Chris, thanks very much for uh, being uh, patient. Um, and I want to sort of get to the broader m messaging um, and, and the sense um, of how the FBI raid uh, changes uh, the dynamic. Uh, we all uh, know that classified information has to be taken seriously. You end up in skiffs, you sign uh, agreements not to divulge it. Uh, those are lifetime agreements and people take them very seriously. Uh, you know, I, I know uh, three people on this call who uh, had access to extremely classified information and are never gonna be uh, sharing it. And there are people who don't even uh, have clearances, and they're reporters who are privy to classified information, and they tend to keep their mouths shut uh, over the course of, of their careers. Um, talk to us about this dynamic, uh, and uh, Chris, and, and what it means from a civil military standpoint, right? I mean, we have the disclosures about Mark Milley, and I want to get Chip's take on this uh, in particular as a retired flag uh, officer. Um, you know, in the difficult position that Mark Milley, I mean, I would argue the historically unprecedented situation or, or, or little precedent that Mark Milley found himself in. Let's, let's first talk about sort of the broader dynamic and the messaging and, and how this affects, um, you know, potentially the, the, the race in, in November, but sort of more broadly, the battle for democracy and the messaging as we go through this, because it looked like January 6th commission was gaining ground and this sense, even among Republicans, that you know, Trump might be a problematic product to keep backing. And yet we, we've seen actually him be able to raise a lot of money in a very short period of time and sort of charge back into the forefront of the public debate. Yeah, I mean, at, at the risk of oversimplifying, um, I, I think people see what they want to see. I mean, my, Michael touched on that a little bit with the, you know, allusion to, you know, what's being said on OAN and, and Newsmax and, you, you know, and you can see it on the uh, on the side, uh, the Democratic side with, you know, liberals criticizing the president. So the nuance in any of this is lost, right? The um, sort of the uh, the ability to look at this and whether you like a, a, a particular party or, or not and and uh, uh, you know figure out right from wrong is is almost gone and, and so to be able to message this in a classic sense I think is very difficult um, and so what you have is you have you know re Republicans looking at it at this and you know further believing that Donald Trump is being persecuted by a political enemy. You have Democrats, I think, looking at this and maybe questioning the um, you know, the strength and uh, the seriousness of the administration's uh, desire to, to go after the former president. So, I mean, you know, if you're the Biden administration, you, you're sort of in a lose-lose uh, situation. So, you know, classic messaging is very tough here. Um, and, and so you, you have to try to, you know, pick and choose your battles and, and, and figure out where, where you can message. You, you and I talked earlier today about, from a practical sense, if you're, if you're not, if this isn't going to happen quickly, I think it, it it probably works against the administration politically, right? The longer this goes on, the more um, you know Trump supporters are able to raise money, the more they're able to point to it. That they seem to have better um, weaponized uh, the messaging and the optics of this than than the other side has. So, uh, I mean, I think we're going to see this uh, carry on un until there's some resolution uh, reached. I mean, is this sort of demo, and, and maybe we'll put this to uh, the, the broader crew after one more follow-up question, right? I mean, is this Democrats basically bringing a knife to a gunfight? As we talked a little bit earlier, Democrats are sort of trying to go through this, this process and it's deliberative and it's, you know, whereas almost everything that they end up doing is now conflated into, right? I'm pro-police, I'm pro-military, unless the military stands up to me or the police stand up to me. I love the FBI. I hate the FBI. The FBI is out trying to get me. And it and, and and these messages are, I bet you, having traction within those in the FBI and in the military and elsewhere, right? I mean, is it is is one side way too deliberative while the other side is actually taking advantage of each of these things 
and, and use them as vehicles to chip away, you know, as, as we've discussed in civil military relations, right? Um, when the, you know, senior leaders are trying to be disciplined and apolitical, the president or the former president is able to conflate that into a weapon to undermine those senior leaders in the eyes of what he views to be his enlisted base, for, for, for example. And I'm, I'm going to turn to the group, but we just want to get your sense on that, Chris. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's hard to Monday morning quarterback. I mean, you, you know, we again, we talked earlier about, you, you know, it, it certainly seems like one side is all in and the other side isn't. Um, so, you, you know, the analogy of a, of a knife to a gunfight may, may fit. But at the same time, I mean. I, I think that this is this is really uh, it's unprecedented, at least in recent history. And so I, I think folks don't there isn't a there isn't a playbook to, to follow. Um, and, and I think you see one side, you know, trying to stick to political high ground or, or you know, traditional American values um, and, and not wanting to, you, you know, uh, play in the mud with with the other side. I mean, that's that's, again, simplistic. But. Um, I, I don't, you know, and, and we're going to talk about uh, General Milley here in a second. I mean, again, whether you're, you know, critiquing political operatives or whether you're critiquing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, it, it's hard to do that because, you, you know, it, it's almost unimaginable to be placed in this situation. Um, and, and so I think people are trying to figure out um, as they they're trying to figure it out as they go. And for the most part, you know, they're they're making the the, the right decisions. But my view would be that if you're the if you're the you know the Democrats and you you believe that you have that you're in the right, uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, President Trump and you know whether it's classified material or any of the other things that he's accused of, the quicker you can move this process along. Um, and still, you know, follow the rule of law, the, the better from a from a messaging and an optic standpoint. I mean, I think that that would reinforce or, or would push back against this idea that President Biden is is weak and, and too deliberate and, you know, and, and bumbling in some cases. But it would also help to move it, um, you know, to a quicker resolution. The longer this goes on, again, we talk about the longer the other side is able to raise money. Um, and, uh, you know, they're able to sort of run out the clock uh, electorally, uh, if you will. Um, and on uh, Millie, um, so the sense you're, you're picking up from people, because what's interesting is that some of the very people who were, you know, advocated Mark Milley uh, at first as being the right answer have now rather sharply turned uh, against him. Um, and little in, you know, and it's sort of, oh, well, he's politically self-serving and he's too leaky and, you know, all of this other uh, stuff that goes with it, as opposed to, I, I mean, I'm historically minded and I, I, a chip, I want to sort of go to you before we, we go to everybody else on this question, uh, right? Um, it would seem to me to be an unprecedented situation that Mark Milley has found himself in. So, I mean, how do you exactly navigate that? Um, anyway, sort of the, the, the sense on sort of where we are, because I know that people in the department in this administration, and I believe that, you know, Mark Esper was trying to do the same thing as Jim Mattis was. Hey, look, let's keep uh, the institution of the military as depoliticized as possible. Uh, and, and then we, you know, ended up Lafayette Square and a whole bunch of things that came with it. And then the president then turns uh, against his chairman uh, and indeed turned against his defense secretary um, over that and and sacked one of them. Um, right. I mean, we're. What's the sense? What's your sense on sort of where, where we are uh, and more broadly in, in terms of sort of the military's relationship with their political masters? It's very hard to Monday morning quarterback uh, General Milley. I mean, I, I think he's done about as well as you could expect anybody to do. Um, I mean, you, you know, most of Washington uh, is self-serving and and leaky. Um, you, you know, the office of the chairman probably isn't much different. But I don't think that that takes away from the difficult civil military decisions that he has made uh, throughout the the Trump uh, administration and then you know now in the Biden uh, it, it administration so I, I mean I'm certainly you know uh, admire the the you know patriotism of uh, of General Milley and yeah I mean I think you know history will critique what he could have done better but I think you know for the 
for the most part, we're, we're lucky to have had him through those tumultuous times. J just in terms of the military writ, writ large, I mean, I, I think the entire country has become um, hyper politicized. And so, you, you know, the military represents the country. And so while we would like to say that, you know, we want the institution of the U.S. military to remain apolitical, I just don't see how that's possible. I mean, they they have, I think, you know, people have tried to make it less political than other institutions throughout the country. But I mean, I, I think what you're seeing in the military is no different than what you're seeing in institutions uh, th throughout the United States. And, and I think that you could say that the institution of the military should stay depoliticized or as apolitical as possible. But for senior leaders, especially at the level of the chairman, the vice chairman, and even the service chiefs, they are, by definition, the interface, the political interface uh, between their services, or I should say among their services, the administration uh, and uh, Congress, right? And, and maybe that's the appropriate place to keep it so that you give, for example, fleet commanders uh, and and field commanders, uh, you know, a, a greater disconnection. Chip, I mean, you uh, have lived this uh, as a proud uh, graduate of the illustrious class of 1968 from the United States Naval Academy, and I should point out you're a Vietnam veteran uh, as well as well as the, a veteran of all the wars between there and when you retired in 2005, if memory serves correctly. What's what's your sense on on all of this? Um, the implications of the former president of the United States, those who argue that he should be fundamentally above the law, and how all of this affects civil military relations and, and, and Mark Milley in that situation, because to me, it's all one conjoined. You either follow the rules and live by them and, and have to be held accountable by them, or you're not, in which case the whole ball of wax sort of comes apart. Well, let me see if I can take it out of the uh, theoretical and uh, Washington-oriented environment and make it a little broader. Hardest job I had was five years on recruiting duties split between two different tours in the late 70s and the uh, early 80s. Uh, so I'm very sensitive to the atmosphere, the, uh, uh, the, the tone that's set. And this sour political environment that we have now is having severe effects on every service's recruiting efforts, despite uh, some of the services paying incredible bonuses for, for people to enlist. Uh, number one, when you're 18 years old, uh, do you really understand the value of money yet? I don't know. I don't think it's as strong as some of the other things. But uh, the influencers, the aunts, the uncles, the older brothers, older sisters, mother and father of the peoples, of the folks that we're trying to recruit uh, are not happy. And that's having a decided effect. And if we don't fix this, uh, we've got even more problems than we anticipate now. Very quickly, Michael, I know you've got a bail out on us, but I want to get you to weigh in and Dove, um, I'd like to get your uh, sense on this uh, as well. Go ahead, Michael. And, and how what, what members are telling you, I mean, I know the don't jump into muddy waters piece of this, but each time we have an incidence like this, it's, 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 it, it has significant repercussions, right? I mean, even once you get used to a degree of normalcy, uh, it reminds you that there's actually quite a lot of abnormalities still in the system, right? It's almost like people in Washington want to get back to their normal, happy place of passing legislation and things look normal when under the surface, actually very little of this is normal at all. And in fact, could get orders of magnitude worse over the coming years than it's already been. No, I, I agree with, with the latter. Uh, I think we unfortunately don't have a lot of leadership right now. I mean, that this is really more reactive. They're reacting to the base uh, instead of trying to, to lead the base. And a lot of the actions we see from Republicans here in D.C. is, is based on fear because, you know, they, they look at Liz Cheney and they look at, you know, these other folks that are losing their primaries and they don't want to be one of those guys. And, you know, they won't deny the hypocrisy of, you know, uh, criticizing Democrats for defunding the police, but yet now the Republicans are saying defund the FBI and DOJ. You know, Trump screaming "lock her up" uh, because of the handling Hillary's handling of sensitive information, uh, and now you know the, the shoes on the other foot. Um, and then we see you know what happened in Ohio yesterday in Cincinnati with a guy trying to break into an uh, FBI headquarters with with a rifle and ended up in, a, in exchanging gunfire. Um, and yet Ohio Republicans' Twitter's accounts are all silent on that you know, with backing up, you know, law enforcement. So it's, uh, you know, is, it, it, they don't deny their hypocrisy. They just, uh, they're not going to face it, you know, publicly. And I think everybody's just trying to wish this away. And instead it, it continues to get worse. 
Um, now, uh, one of the things that I was really concerned about earlier this week, I was talking to a friend of mine who works on the Hill, who was in the DC guard. And he said how uh, alarmed, you know, some of his fellow soldiers are about what happened, uh, down at Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, these guys are watching OAN and Newsmax and he's starting to get concerned about how some of the military will react, especially the guard, if they are called out to, you know, enforce some of the peace. And there's, you know, concern now that there could be fencing around the Department of Justice. It could be fencing around the FBI building. We could have fencing around our federal courthouses that things, you know, really could get worse before they get better. And, 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 and just to clarify, right, I mean, the concern is that actually military members are beginning to see this through the lens of disinformation as opposed to what these events actually are and thereby exactly. change how it is that they would react in the future if called on to respond uh, to a situation, whether January 6th or anything else. That is correct. That's exactly right. Dove, I just want to get your sense on this uh, b- b- before we part. Sure. Uh, a couple of points. The first is the military has made it very clear, senior military, that they can't go after people for what they think. They can only go after uh, individuals in the military for what they do, which means that the people who are watching all these crazy news channels uh, and and TV channels, uh, they may be totally with Trump or even beyond him with the uh, Proud Boys and whoever. But if they don't do anything, nobody's going to touch them, which and that in turn means that when it happens, it's going to be very bad because no one will have been touching them beforehand. So that's one thing to consider. The other thing to bear in mind, uh, and, uh, you know, Michael just pointed out that both parties are sort of hypocritical because they kind of have flipped places in terms of whom they attack and why, is that ultimately this isn't between Trump and the Democrats. This is between Trump and the secretary and, and the attorney general. Garland pulled one on him yesterday because uh, at three o'clock today, we're going to see what exactly uh, the uh, FBI was asking for. But we're not going to get all the details. And I suspect that at that point, Trump will turn around and say, well, the details would exonerate me. And so this is going to go on. But it's really between those two men. Uh, Garland is uh, on clearly on the road to prosecuting Trump. Uh, And uh, as I wrote in the national interest earlier this week, the sooner he does it, the better, because if he if if he indicts Trump before Trump announces in September, Trump is on the defensive. If he indicts him afterwards, Trump is a martyr and it underscores his argument that this is all political, which he'll make anyway. But it'll be harder to make if he's indicted first. Maybe they'll go ahead and do that. I don't know. But it's really between those two men. Biden has been staying out of it. And quite frankly, rightly so. Uh, he strongly believes he was chairman of, of uh, the, uh, the, the Senate uh, committee uh, that oversaw the Department of Justice. And he doesn't like the idea of the president meddling with justice. And so he's not doing that, unlike his predecessor. Uh, it's really between the the attorney general and the former president of the United States. And and, and very quickly, Dev, one last question. You you had one of the highest uh, clearances uh, imaginable because you had to fund the programs, uh, and you've seen uh, and and you've had um, actually one of the highest clearances I know in government, pretty much the entire for for for, for spanning almost five decades. Um, what is it that people need to know about what the nuclear clearance and the specific sensitivity of what it is we're discussing, because people have a tendency of sort of glossing it over, as opposed to not realizing this falls under a completely, not only is it a special access program, but actually there's a higher level that's associated with this. Yeah, it's a completely separate clearance, uh, and for good reason. Uh, (laughs) This We're talking about the ability to blow up the world. Uh, And so there's a special sensitivity here that uh, even people with very, very high clearances don't necessarily get the clearance into uh, the specifics of nuclear programs. Now, there's one other thing that people may not realize, which is when you have a classified document, particularly a highly classified document, it's actually numbered. And the reason it's numbered is so that you can know where it's going. Uh, If you then take that numbered document and abscond with it, Uh, that becomes, uh, frankly, a a criminal exercise. And so uh, we don't know yet what Mr. Trump had in Mar-a-Lago. 
the reports are that it was nuclear documentation. And in that case, uh, you're talking about a very, very serious uh, action on the part of the former president. Um, Chris, I want to go to you very, very briefly. You put your hand up uh, before uh, we uh, part. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to just connect just a couple dots that were thoughtfully put out there by um, both Chip and, and by Dove. I mean, you, you know, we talked about China uh, in, in the middle of the show and, and what the polls say about, um, you, you know, what the American people think. Where to me, these all these issues come crashing together is while I agree with Dove that this is between the attorney general and the president, the American public, uh, I mean, it, are are picking sides or already have sides and and these issues are only reinforcing what they think and so where you could look at this and say hey this is a strictly political issue or it's, it's an issue about classified documents where this becomes very complicated is when you do then have to go to the american people and make a case to either defend Taiwan or, God forbid, fight China um, over Taiwan or over something else. Um, and, you know, the trust between uh, the administration, any administration in the American public is is further fractured. So to me, I mean, all of these issues come crashing together um, as we become more and more isolated and the, the information that the American people get becomes more and more of an echo chamber. Um, getting national, um, you know, the nation to come together to do something in the interest of national security, I think becomes harder and harder and, and plays into our adversaries' hands. Um, let me just, Chip, let me ask you one um, um, question as somebody who, who uh, was a senior leader. And I know that, you know, uh, you take um, very seriously having discussed this with you, right? I mean, at, at some point, uh, the challenge is for the leader who's sitting in the job, and it's not for people who sat in the job to tell people who are sitting in the job how to do uh, their job, right? But but ultimately, what's the communication, senior leadership communication challenge here, and how do we need to address it? Because the department is trying to say, hey, look, we live in a democracy, it's freedom of speech, you have a freedom of speech, you have a freedom of thought, you have a freedom of action within rules, I can punish you for extremist behavior, not because I suspect you of maybe being crazy. Um, and indeed, unfortunately, each of the military services has whistled past these graveyards saying, well, you know, oh, Vago's a racist lunatic, but you know, he keeps to himself and he's a good, good Marine. He's a good soldier. He's a good sailor. He's a good airman. I'm not really good to get into him. What he does on his personal time is his own business. But when he shows up, he does a great job for us. Right. How does, how does, is, is there something different we should be doing in how the department communicates, how it tries to communicate with soldiers, sailors, airmen, uh, Marine and guardsmen? Um, because it appears that some may have descended down some of these questionable areas as everything becomes more politicized. And we may be facing much bigger problems, you know, as Michael alluded to uh, and as Dove alluded to, right? You don't, you're not going to find it out until, and, and Chris did, right? Until it's too late. Do we, do we need to be thinking differently about this as, as leaders across the spectrum? Well, I think we need to go back to basic principles. The uh, code of conduct that Eisenhower brought in, I believe, in the uh, early 1950s in response to uh, unseemly incidents during the war of Korea, the war in Korea, particularly among our POWs, uh, uh, is uh, one type of thing. Um, I understand the argument that uh, what he does on his own, what he or she does on his or her own time is different from what they do on duty. No, it isn't. Uh, you are who you are 24 hours a day, whether you're on duty or not. And we need to insist on that standard. And, and just before we go, I've, I've got to uh, got to do uh, this because there are two important things. Uh, and I neglected uh, to mention this, the burn pit legislation that went through something very important, obviously, to President Biden, given uh, suspicions that his son's uh, brain cancer may actually uh, have been caused by that and, and certainly a health concern for a long time. And one, uh, sadly, which, uh, Chip, uh, you've experienced in war zones uh, over, over many decades. Uh, and we also have to talk about the Middle East uh, very briefly. Uh, Dove uh, started us off on the Middle East because uh, nuclear, you know, negotiations with Iran continuing. That ball is still moving. Walk us through where we are right now and what it means. 
Well, they, uh, the ball is indeed moving out in uh, Vienna, and uh, the Europeans seem to be thinking that this thing could actually happen. Uh, at the same time, of course, the Iranians are saying, yes, we're talking, but no, nothing new is really happening. So we're getting mixed signals. But the Europeans really seem to be convinced that uh, if the United States were to go along, and, and that's still a bit of a question mark as well, but if we were to go along, there might actually be a deal. So we'll wait and see, of course. And uh, on uh, burn, burn pits, Chip, uh, any, any, any thoughts on that and the importance of this legislation? Well, it, it unfortunately became a uh, test of uh, our um, pledge that we take care of the veterans to bind up his wound, et cetera, et cetera, to badly paraphrase what Abraham Lincoln said. And to make it a political football was just an absolute disaster uh, for relations or reputation within the serving community and the veteran community. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Terrific conversation. We went a little bit longer than we originally uh, anticipated, in part because there was a lot to discuss. Thanks so very, very much, Chip. Thank you very much. You're welcome back aboard uh, anytime. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Thank you, uh, Dove and, and Michael, uh, of course. Thanks so very much again.